If you have a Bible, would you do me a favor and would you open up to Judges chapter 13? Judges chapter 13. My name is Trevor. It's good to be with you this morning. You have caught us in a series working uh, week by week through the book of Judges, a dark book in Israel's history, a book that is centrally about uh, God's people who have been unfaithful to God and needing God's faithfulness to meet them in the midst of their own unfaithfulness. And as we have walked through the book of Judges, we have seen again and again and again God deliver his people. And the book has gotten darker as we've gone on week by week, and we have a few more weeks to go. Um, But this morning, we will be looking at a character that if you don't know the story, at the very least, you are familiar with the name, and that is Samson. I think it's safe to say that we all really want good leaders to be in charge. When it comes to any sort of level of political power or in our businesses or even in our homes, we desperately want good, qualified leaders. And when you're reading through the book of Judges, and again, Judges just means the judges aren't actually people who are doing judging, save for Deborah. Judges just means leaders, deliverers. We discover again and again that God calls people, and sometimes those who God calls are not the most qualified, and sometimes they are a mess in how they orchestrate and handle their own lives. Samson is the last judge in the book of Judges, and he is the most famous. When I was a kid and I would occasionally go to church, we would have flannel graphs. Anybody remember flannel graphs? Yeah? Those were these uh, flannel boards that you would have, and uh, Sunday school teachers would tell the stories of of the Bible through these uh, flannel sort of characters. And I remember Samson being taught, and he kind of looked like Arnold Schwarzenegger, right? He was sort of this massive, right, bodybuilding-esque figure. And we were taught as kids about him and his hair and this woman named Delilah. And and it was supposed to inspire us, um, though I'm not sure why or how. And this morning, as we spend some time with Samson, I think we will discover that God wants to show us something about ourselves, something about our church, and something about him as we look into this man who, for all intents and purposes, is a great man and a great disappointment. You know, Winston Churchill once said that there is nothing noble being superior to your fellow man. True nobility is being superior to your former self. 
Churchill was arguing that, that as we go on in life, that if you want to pursue greatness, you're not comparing yourself to others. You're always comparing yourself to who you were yesterday. I would imagine that most of you want to wake up tomorrow morning and be a little more faithful to God, a little more good, a little bit more moral, a little bit more righteous, a little bit more. You long to be better tomorrow than you are today. And when we read the Bible, we look for stories of those who we hope would have kind of redemptive arcs where they would maybe start low and then they would get better and better as things go on. And yet, in the story of Samson, we see the opposite. Samson is a strong man, yet he is remarkably weak. He is full of talent, off to a great start, and yet he is cocky, he is a ladies' man, he is, in some people's minds, a real man, and in many others, a real mess. He's supposed to lead God's people against the Philistines, and he does have some successes, but he, he is most seen as a shallow, selfish playboy. And for Samson, there is this massive gap between his potential and his failure. Judges chapter 12, 8 through 16, 31 tells the story of Samson. Samson gets four chapters in the book of Judges, more than any other judge. And this morning we will spend some time looking at his story. So if you have a Bible and you're in Judges chapter 13, we will begin in verse 1, and this is how it begins. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, so the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. After um, uh, um, Ibzon and Elon and Abdon, you can read about them in Judges 12, 8, in the back half of Judges 8, the cycle that we see in Judges continues. If you're unfamiliar with the book of Judges, every single time in Judges, it sort of works like this. Um, God's people are unfaithful to God, and then they experience consequences of their unfaithfulness, and then they cry out to God for help. God sends them a deliverer, and then there's a time of peace, and then after the time of peace, they are disobedient again, often worse than they were, and the cycle continues. And so here we have Israel who's been delivered again and again and again and again and again and things get worse and worse and worse. And once again, in Judges 13, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And so what does the Lord do? He's going to once again deliver them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. Their disobedience leads to consequences. And those consequences are the uh, mistreatment and overtaking of them by the Philistines. So this morning, what is God going to do with his people who have been now suffering because of their consequences? Well, once again, he's going to send a deliverer, and that man is Samson. 
This morning, we'll talk about Samson in kind of five movements. I'll move quickly because we are, we're not going to be here. We're not going to read all four chapters of Judges today. You can do that on your own time. My job this morning will be that you leave understanding the story of Samson, and then we'll end by pulling out some implications for us as individuals and as God's people and as we think about our Lord. So um, this is the story of Samson the man who is chosen to deliver God's people from the Philistines in Judges 13 through Judges 16. It begins with his birth. His birth starts like this in Judges 13. A certain man of Zorah named Manoah from the clan of the Danites had a wife who was childless, unable to give birth. The angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, You're barren and childless, but you're going to become pregnant and give birth to a son. Now see to it that you drink no wine or other fermented drink and that you do not eat anything unclean. You will become pregnant and have a son whose head is never to be touched by a razor because the boy is to be a Nazarite, dedicated to God from the womb. He will take the lead in delivering Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Samson's story begins kind of like a nativity story, right? Does it sort of remind you of Christmas? You have a woman who cannot give birth and a special child is to be born by her. An angel comes to visit her and gives this message. And the message is, you're going to have a son and your son is going to deliver my people from the Philistines. And there are a few unique things about Samson. Most notably, he is to be a Nazarite. Now, if you want to know more about the Nazarites, you can read Numbers chapter 6. The Nazarite vow was a particular kind of vow that one could take where they were avoiding things that God otherwise would have allowed them to engage in, but they avoid them specifically so that they can give a special dedication to God. A Nazarite is simple, it's no wine, it's no dead bodies, and it's no haircuts. Um, That's the basic idea, right? So if you want to take a Nazarite vow, a special dedication and commitment to the Lord, you commit no dead bodies, no wine, no unclean food, and also no haircuts. And normally, a Nazarite vow is taken by people who are in a position in the Old Testament where they long to dedicate themselves to the Lord, and they feel a a special sense of, God, I want to give you my whole life in a special way. And normally, a Nazarite vow is only a few weeks, but for... for, For Samson, his vow is going to start before he is born. He he is going to, from the womb, his mother is not going to drink any um, alcohol, right? And, and, And she is preparing him because his vow begins in the womb and his vow will carry him all the way to the end of his life. Or at least that's the way it's supposed to be. And the message to Samson's mom is, Samson is going to deliver you from the Philistines. This is good news as God's people have been enslaved by the Philistines for 40 years. And so in the rest of chapter 13, Samson's 
future mother. His mother runs to Manoah and tells, tells Manoah, an angel visited me or a divine figure visited me. And Manoah believes, but he wants more information. So he prays that the angel would come back and visit them. And God answers that prayer. And Manoah says, how do we do this? How do we raise our son to be this great deliverer? And once again, the angel says, here's what you're going to do. Stick to the Nazarite vow. And after the angel says that, Manoah says, let me give you a meal. And the angel says, no, thanks. I don't want a meal. Just give a burnt offering instead. And so they give a burnt offering. And then all of a sudden, God sends a flame and the angel rises in the flame. And Manoah realizes that the meal he just offered to this divine being is in fact an angel. And then they have a son who they named Samson, whose name means Sonny. And at the end of Judges 13, this special boy with this special vow committed to God is born. And in verse 25 of Judges 13, it says the spirit of the Lord began to stir him. God chooses a few different judges in the book of Judges. We've looked at a bunch of them. No judge is uh, chosen like this one. This is a great start. God chooses Samson before he is born in his mother's womb. He is going to be great. Things are off to a wonderful start. And then comes his marriage. Samson grows up and things look good. He looks like he is going to be the great deliverer of God's people that they are longing for. And then we discover that in Judges chapter 14, Verse 1, it says that Samson goes down to Timnah and he saw there a young Philistine woman. Okay, he's there probably to kick her out and to kick them out, right? After all, Samson's job is to deliver God's people from the Philistines. He sees this young woman and what does he do? When he returned, he said to his father and mother, I have seen a Philistine woman in Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. Oh no. His father and mother replied, isn't there an acceptable woman among your relatives or among all our people? Must you go to the uncircumcised Philistines to get a wife? But Samson said to his father, get her for me. She's the right one for me. No, she's not. But Samson sees a woman, he wants a woman, he demands a woman. And his parents say, no, 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 no. And you can begin to see that things are already off to a bad start. Samson, you are chosen to deliver us from the Philistines, not marry them. Now, this isn't about race or ethnicity. This is about God calling his people to worship him and God calling his people not to marry those who worship other gods. And you can almost hear Samson say, I don't care who she worships. I don't care how she worships. I don't care if she's a believer or she's not a believer. I want her, make her mine. Samson has a woman problem. Samson has got a lot of problems. 
And he turns to his parents, and his parents, in a moment of wisdom, you can almost hear his mother, who's this kind of hero in the story, you know, you wonder if she said, Samson, when you were in my belly, I didn't drink any wine, and I have been preparing my whole life. An angel came. You're to be a deliverer. You cannot marry a Philistine. But Samson says, no, I'll do what I want to do. This is just a short reminder. If you're here this morning and you are uh, a student, listen to your parents. <laughs> let, me, let me clarify this. If your parents love God and love you, they are sometimes going to ask you to do things that might not make a lot of sense to you, but I promise you later in life you will thank them for. What is the first failure of Samson? I mean, it's probably falling in love with the Philistine and the immediate second failure is not listening to his parents. Well, God says in Judges 14 that he's going to work through this poor decision of Samson's. Samson's on his way to see this woman that he intends to marry, and as he gets close to a vineyard, which he should be avoiding generally as wine is no good for his Nazarite vow, he kills a lion. He eats honey out of the lion's carcass, doesn't tell anybody about it, and now we've got Samson near a vineyard touching dead things, two things he's definitely not supposed to do. He gets into Timnah, he holds a big bachelor party, and because he has no community, he is assigned 30 men who are going to be his groomsmen um, as a part of his wedding. He decides at this bachelor party that he's going to mess with these groomsmen who are Philistines, not Israelites, and he gives them a riddle. And the riddle is tricky to figure out, but he promises them that if they understand the riddle, he'll give them a big prize. Well, the groomsmen go to Samson's future wife and they say, what's the answer? She doesn't tell them, so they threaten to kill her. For seven days, she cries, and then finally, she tells them after Samson tells her. She then takes the information about this riddle, goes to his groomsmen, tells them the answer. They come to Samson. They give him the answer to the riddle. Samson now needs to pay up. He decides to kill 30 men, steal their clothes, pay them off, and then he heads home to sulk with his family. And while Samson is sulking, his bride and Timnah is given away to one of the groomsmen. Things are beginning to unravel. Samson then decides to return to this beautiful woman who is to be his wife in Judges 15, but he does not yet know that she has been given away. And so we have his vengeance. Later on, at the time of the wheat harvest, Samson took a young goat. He goes to visit his wife, and he said, I'm going to my wife's room. But her father wouldn't let him go in, and his father, her father said, I was so sure you hated her, Samson, that I gave her to your companion. I gave her to one of the groomsmen. Isn't her younger sister more attractive? Take her instead. Samson is so enraged by this that he catches three hundred foxes, ties their tails together in pairs, attaches a torch to the fox's tails so that the foxes are terrified of the fire. 
the foxes run all throughout the Philistine land and burn up all of their grain, their olive groves, and their vineyards. The Philistines get so angry about this that they kill the woman that Samson was trying to marry and her father, the one who tried to give Samson his attractive younger daughter, which is a weird thing to say about your kids, by the way. Um, after that happens, the Philistines attack Israel. Israel doesn't know what to do. They blame Samson for all of this. So they tie Samson up. And because Samson has this great strength, which you may or may not know about, this is part of the gift of Samson, is because he is a Nazarite and because he is God's great deliverer, he has been given this superhuman strength. He snaps the ropes and he takes a jawbone from another dead donkey and he kills a thousand Philistines. Exhausted, God gives Samson something to drink. And we end Judges chapter 15 with Samson having killed a thousand Philistines, the Philistine land being burned, Samson being continually disobedient. It's almost like as you hear the story of Samson, it kind of goes something like this. Samson is thinking self-centeredly. Samson is looking out for his own interests. Samson is doing what's best for him. And all the while, God is using Samson's failures for his own plan. I am grateful for the ways that God uses my failures to achieve his own plan. Judges chapter 16 records Samson's fall. Samson, after this whole debacle with the killing of the thousand at Jawbone Hill, we find that Samson went to Gaza, and there he sees a prostitute. You know, you could say this about Samson. He is extraordinarily strong in the presence of men and extraordinarily weak in the presence of women. Here he gives himself over to a prostitute, and he spends the night with her. And the people of Gaza were told, hey, Samson's here, so they decide they're going to surround the place, and they're going to wait for him all night at the city gate. But they didn't make any move during the night saying, at dawn, that's when we'll kill him. Samson lay there until the middle of the night only. He doesn't stay all night. And then he gets up and he takes a hold of the doors of the city gate and together with two posts, he tears them loose, bar and all. He lifts them to his shoulders and carries them to the top of the hill that faces Hebron. And after that, Samson sometime later falls in love with another woman this time in the Valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. If there's a single story of Samson, you probably know it's this one. The rulers of the Philistines went to Delilah, and they said, see if you can lure him into showing you the secret of his great strength and how we can overpower him so we may tie him up and subdue him. Each one of us will give you 1,100 shekels of silver. Samson falls in love with Delilah, and Delilah comes to Samson, and Delilah asks, Samson, you've killed a thousand, you've captured foxes, you've killed a lion, you've, you've, uh, you've, you've taken gates off of their hinges, clearly you are so strong, clearly you can't be defeated, what is the secret of your strength? Samson lies to her, and then he's tried, 
and he emerges victorious. So Delilah asks him again, Samson, tell me, you lied to me. What is the secret of your strength? Samson lies again. She sets him up again. He emerge, emerges victorious again. So she begs again, and he lies again, and he's victorious again. And then it says that Delilah nags Samson, nags him incessantly after he lied to her three times, and then all of a sudden, he decides to tell Delilah the truth. He says, Delilah, the secret is my hair. And then he falls asleep in her lap. And while he is asleep, she shaves his head while he's sleeping. And it says in this extraordinarily sad moment in Judges 15, it says that his strength left him, the Lord left him. Well, the Philistines come in, they capture Samson, they gouge his eyes out, making him blind, and they turn him into a slave. And this leads to Samson's death. In Judges 16, the end of that chapter, the Philistines who have Samson blind and bound, serving as a sort of slave to them, it says that the rulers of the Philistines, they assemble to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their god, and to celebrate, saying, Our God has delivered Samson, our enemy, into our hands. And when the people saw Samson, they praised their God, saying, Our God has delivered our enemy into our hands, the one who laid waste on our land and multiplied our slain. They are celebrating Samson's defeat. They are celebrating the victory of Dagon the God of prosperity. And then they bring Samson out to humiliate him in front of 3,000 people. They lean Samson up against some pillars. And Samson, blind and bound, prays to God, Sovereign Lord, remember me. Please, God, strengthen me just once more. And let me, with one blow, get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. Then Samson reached towards the two pillars on which the temple stood. Bracing himself against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. And he pushed with all his might and down came the temple on the rulers and all the people in it. Samson killed many more when he died than when he lived. Samson's taken home, and he's buried. And his 20 years of delivering Israel comes to an end. His story starts so strong. And then decision after decision after decision leads to his downfall. And as we read the story of Samson, it makes sense for us to ask questions about what is in this story for us? What does God have for us in this text? Well, I want to draw a few things out together as we wrap up our time in this story. I want to talk first about how Samson teaches us a lesson about who we are. Samson doesn't like boundaries, and you don't really either. 
God sets boundaries for Samson at the beginning. Here's the deal. No dead things, no wine, no cutting of the hair. Don't do that. And Samson follows God's boundaries when Samson wants to. That's how he lives. Samson's posture before God is, God, I will listen to you when I think it's a good idea to listen to you. Otherwise, I will do what I want to do. I'll kill a dead lion. You said not to do that. I'll do that. I will have a bachelor party with my friends, literally a drinking party in chapter 14. I will do what I want when I want. That's true of Samson and it's true of us. We don't see God's boundaries as those that God gives us in order for us to live a freeing, fulfilled life. Too often, we think of God's boundaries as things God has given us to constrain our joy and our freedom. When you ask many people, most people in our world, what they think of Christian faith, I was just talking with some students recently and asked, how many of you, when you think of Christian faith, you think of freedom? None of them said that they thought Christian faith meant freedom. Why is that? It's because their perception of freedom is that I get to do what I want. But Christianity says it is the most freeing because we do not do what we want, but instead we live in light of who God has made us to be. God's commandments are meant for your benefit. They're meant for your freedom. In the same way that a parent comes along a child and says to the child, no, don't touch that, it will burn you. No, don't do that, that person will burn you. No, don't make that decision, that will be bad for you. In the same way that a parent who loves their child comes around their child and gives their child boundaries, it's not to inhibit their ability to live a full life, it's so that they may live a full life. Samson does what he wants, when he wants, because he thinks that God's boundaries, God's commands, God's rules are only necessary when he thinks they're necessary. And he doesn't think disobedience is that big of a deal. When you read the story of Samson, one of the things you discover is that Those who decide to say, God, I will do things my own way, may one day wake up exposed and shamed in the way that Samson does. Because God has a way of bringing the darkness into the light. God sees what no one else sees. So we see that Samson has a problem with boundaries, and we do too. Samson also has a problem with lust, and we do too. There are three women in the story, apart from Samson's mother, who I said is kind of a hero. There's the Philistine girl. His parents said, this is not right. Do not marry her. You're supposed to fight the Philistines, not marry them. And Samson says, who cares? I want her now. She's not a believer. Who cares? I want her. It's his pro- he visits a prostitute in Gaza, once again revealing that Samson cannot control his own sexual appetites. And finally, Delilah, who he falls in love with, and we can just say by reading the story, he is a huge poor judge of character. Any woman that you start dating who starts asking for your secrets only to perpetually betray you is not a woman you want to be in a relationship with. 
She even says, Samson, if you love me, you'll tell me the secret of how to destroy you. He goes, okay. Never underestimate the power of sex to, dis- to, disrail, to derail your spiritual life. We do not talk about this often in the church, but pastorally I must mention it, especially in a story like Samson. We see an epidemic in the church today of Christian men who proclaim to love God but find themselves to be slaves to their own sexual appetites. And I want to tell you this morning that when you read the story of Samson, you discover that so many of the issues he faces is because he does not face the fact that he cannot get control over his own lusts. Man, if, if you're here this morning and you are failing again and again and again when it comes to pursuing your own sexual appetites, I want you to know that there is victory available in Christ, forgiveness available in Christ, and there are men in this church who have experienced, by God's grace, the power over that, and they would love to connect with you and walk with you in the midst of it. Too often, young men who struggle with these things do not open themselves up, invite others in, and and, and journey towards holiness alongside with others, and they become slaves with it, thinking that if they get married, it will go away. Thinking that if they just just don't tell, they can just defeat it on their own. We'll get to this in a second, but Samson is too convinced that he can do things on his own. We have a massive problem in this world with men who objectify, mistreat, and use women to satisfy themselves. They do not honor them or love them or treat them the way God tells us to treat them. And when we fail to do this right, not only does it affect the kingdom, it affects us and it affects what God has for us and wants for us. Samson has a lust problem. We have a lust problem. Do not leave this morning. God sees it, God knows about it, and God wants you to be delivered from it. But he does not call you to do it alone. Men, additionally, just like Samson, are arrogant. Samson is extraordinarily arrogant and cocky, so too are we. We overestimate our own cleverness. Samson doesn't think he can be defeated. You know, when you're reading the story, you wonder, why on earth does Samson tell Delilah that the secret is in his hair? and then fall asleep on her lap so she can shave his head. And here's what my conclusion is. Samson doesn't believe that his strength is in his hair. He thinks he has it, and it's his, and nothing can be done to take it away from him. He doesn't really think that if she shaves his head, he'll lose anything. He's so cocky. He's so arrogant. He thinks nothing can stop him. And he doesn't think he can actually lose his power. He never sees how utterly dependent he is on God's grace. Here's a secret of Samson. His strength is never really in his hair. It's in the God who gives him his strength. Your strength is not really in you. It's not really yours. Any strength you have is a gift from God to you to be stewarded for him and his glory. Make no mistake, too many people see their gifts as things that belong to them and as things that they cannot lose. They become cocky and arrogant. 
And the result of that is often that we end up losing them because we fail to recognize that anything we're able to do is really by the grace of God. Samson's strength was never really in his hair. It was in God. Do you overestimate your own abilities? Do you walk around thinking that you're invincible, that you can never be taken down? You're, must be, you might be like Samson. Secondly, the church. One of the things about Samson that's remarkable is that Samson's story mirrors the church. When Samson's not rescuing Israel, he's being Israel. Israel is unfaithful perpetually, and they get a leader who does the same. He's got high potential, and yet he falls again and again because he thinks that his strength is in himself. Any church, any group of Christians who thinks that their strength is in themselves and not in the grace of God is in danger of falling. We must keep God's grace at the center of all that we do and all that we think. We must look to his faithfulness, not our own. For we are in big trouble as God's people if we ever begin to believe that it's up to us, that we can do it. If we ever spend too much time focusing on ourselves and neglect God's faithfulness, we are doomed. And lastly, I want to draw something out in the Samson story about God. You're reading the Samson story and it becomes clear that God is the hero. God is the one who works through Samson's failures. God chases a Philistine woman and what's the result of that? God is working in it. Samson slaughters a thousand and what's the result? God is working in it. God uses the stupidity of Samson for great things. And God uses my stupidity and yours for good things as well. I want to remind you this morning that if you feel like a failure, and sometimes reading stories like this can cause us to reflect on our own failures, I want to remind you that God wants to use you to call out to him, and he will. We're also supposed to see that Samson is, end, end of his life, Samson is betrayed, he is bound, he is tortured, he is mocked, and we see Samson at the end of his life with his outstretched arms pulling down the, the enemy of darkness onto this false god, Dagon. And if that's not a picture of another king who is bound, tortured, mocked, who at the end of his life has outstretched arms as he pulls down the pillars of death and darkness, we see in Samson a picture of what we see more fully in Jesus. But at the end of Samson, Dagon is dead, Samson is dead, end of the story. But at the end of Jesus, we don't get end of the story, we get the beginning of life with God forever and an empty tomb. Samson dies in a heap of rubble, a total failure with this blip of redemption at the end that causes him to be called a hero in Hebrews 11. But his story is tragic. We come together every week not to worship a guy like Samson, but to worship a true hero whose story is anything but tragic, one who defeats the power of death on the cross. We come together to worship Jesus. Samson's story is, is a, a strong man who we discover is quite weak. Jesus is the story is the one of a man who becomes weak in order to become strong. 
Samson dies in the rubble. Jesus emerges victorious. Samson defeats Dagon. Jesus defeats your greatest enemy, sin and death itself. Our enemy is death, and Jesus defeats it. Our enemy is sin, and Christ forgives it. So however much of a mess you've gotten yourself into, this church is not a club for the saintly. We are a hospital for sinners. And when you are reading the story of Samson, if what you are causing, what God awakens is you is the, is the recognition of your own failures and your need for God, the Bible teaches again and again and again that though we often give up on God, he does not give up on us. He never gives up. He never lets go. And if you're here this morning and you do not know Jesus, you feel like a failure and you don't know how to get forgiveness. You see your death coming for you and you don't know what's on the other side. You struggle, defeated regularly by lust or arrogance or pride, or you completely live outside of God's boundaries and you have begun to taste the reality that when you do that, it's not freeing, it's a different kind of slavery. There is good news for you because God comes to you and says, the consequences of all your actions I want to take on myself out of love for you. I'm going to take them on myself, on the cross. I'm going to defeat them there and offer you life forever with God. If you find yourself like Samson, longing for peace forever with God, know that it is available, not in Samson, but in Jesus. He is the one that we need. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I want to pray for those in this room who are living outside of your boundaries. They, they have begun to see your boundaries not as a place of freedom, but as a place of slavery, and they have totally missed it. They don't know how good you are. They don't know what you want for them. They don't know the freedom you have for them. And so, Lord, they are treating your boundaries like they are merely optional suggestions. And God, I pray, I pray that you would enter into their lives and that you would show them that you are for them. You would show them that you care about them and you would show them the magnitude of your grace. I pray that same prayer for those who are in this room struggling with lust, whose spiritual lives are just corrupt with giving in to temptation. And Lord, I pray that you would convict them deeply of their sin this morning and that they would cry out to you and they would invite others in that they might be able to experience the victory on the other side of that struggle. And I pray for us, Lord, as we are arrogant and we struggle with arrogance, we again and again think that we can live how we want without any consequences. We sometimes think that our gifts are ours, our successes are ours, what we've accomplished is because of us, and we forget that you have given us everything. Everything we have is a gift from you. Help us to see how dependent we are on you and how dependent we are on your grace. Lord, I pray that as a church we would keep faithfulness to you at the center of all we do, and I pray that when we are tempted to look anywhere else, we would return our eyes once again 
to Jesus. That at the cross we would see his victory. In the empty tomb we would see his forgiveness and his grace. That we would see life with God forever offered to us. Lord, I pray that not a single person who desperately needs you would miss your grace offered to them this morning in and through the work of your son, Jesus. Lord, help us to look through the story of Samson and to see your son, Jesus, offering us life with you forever. We thank you for this morning and for the book of Judges and how ultimately it points to your faithfulness, our unfaithfulness, but your faithfulness, and how it points to your goodness and how it points to Jesus. Give us greater image of Jesus as we continue to worship this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen.